Oh my goodness, it's exciting to be back with you guys, and it's exciting to see this service. My gosh, this is going to be fun. I had a wonderful break, a productive break. I hope that yours was wonderful and productive. Uh, If you've never been before, by the way, my name is Jacob. Uh, I'm the college teaching director here at our Anderson campus, Uh, and I had a super productive break because uh, I just so happened to produce a baby over the break. Uh, pictured here. Her name is Charlotte. She is just a joy to be experienced. Uh, she's just over a month old, uh, and she actually never smiles like that. This was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, so soak it in, as I have tried to, because normally, normally her mouth is open, but her eyes are much more angry, and her mouth is filled with screams and tears and rage. So... This is a great moment that we should capture for all posterity. Uh, and that's, uh, that's what I did over the break. I don't know what you did. Uh, maybe you had a baby. That's awesome. Congratulations. Uh, but probably not, right? Probably you went and saw your family. Probably you went and uh, hung out with friends or went skiing or, or to the beach or whatever you did. I don't know. Uh, you had, hopefully, a wonderful break. And hopefully it was something that prepared you for this new semester. Hopefully for an awesome semester because you have new classes. I mean, you've got uh, new friendships, maybe. I don't know, new relationships. You've got all these new things ahead of you, which is so exciting. Uh, and I want to add to that list. I want to let you know right now that I'm about to add to your newness of the semester a new experience known as Axe Cop. One day at the scene of a fire, the cop found the perfect fireman axe. That was the day he became Axe Cop. Episode 1. I need a partner now. So Axe Cop had tryouts and hired a partner. My name is Flute Cap. Sign up here. We have a gang of dinosaurs to kill. So the new team went to the land of volcanoes and fought the gang of dinosaurs with their axe and flute. I'll chop your heads off! So they cut the mother and father dinosaur heads off, then devised a plan. We should put these heads on a stick and hide bombs in them. But Flute Cop got dinosaur blood on him. I feel strange. The dinosaur blood caused Flute Cop to unexpectedly transform into a dinosaur soldier. And so they became Axe Cop and Dinosaur Soldier. The end. Now, <laughs> right. See, you you figured out. You figured it out. Uh, you might have some questions in your mind at this point. Hopefully, at this point, uh, you are asking yourself two questions. The first question you should be asking is. But what about the bombs and the dinosaur heads, right? Because that was a cool plan that should totally happen. The other question that should be in your mind right now uh, is, what? And to answer those questions, as some of you already noticed, if you look up at the end credits of this magnificent story, you find that the artist is a guy named Ethan, who's 29 years old, 
That's pretty standard. And the writer is a guy named Malachi who's five. Okay, so this story, this comic, this is a web series that became, it was on Fox for a little while, a web comic, where basically there is a five-year-old kid and his half-brother, Ethan, wrote out or drew out all the stories that Malachi would make up. And we need to understand that about the story of Axe Cop and Flute Cop slash Dinosaur Soldier uh, because it helps us understand the content a little bit better, right? Like once we understand kind of the more the context around the situation, suddenly the content makes a little bit more sense, right? It still doesn't make perfect sense. Dinosaur blood, as far as I know, does not have transformative properties. Maybe. I don't know. That could be a cool Jurassic Park. But... Uh, it answers most of the questions, right? It makes us feel a little bit better because the reality is most of the time we need to know the context of a situation, uh, of a statement, uh, of, of any sort of story in order to understand the content. We've got to know the context to understand the content. That's just the way life works, right? That's why sometimes when we don't understand the context, we misinterpret the content. Sometimes we get that text from that boyfriend or girlfriend, and we just assume, oh my gosh, they're trying to hurt my feelings, or they're trying to like say this, or they're being sarcastic. Why? Because we don't fully understand the context, and we make a snap decision based on their wording and their use of that little ghost emoji. We're like, well, what is that supposed to mean? Right? And we get mad at them, and we get frustrated. Some of us, we already dropped a class this semester. How many of us already dropped a class this semester? Nice. Oh my gosh. That is impressive. I was not expecting that many. Uh, But some of us have already dropped a class this semester. Why? Man, because some of us, maybe we walked into that class and we sat down for syllabus day and we opened it up and we're like, oh my gosh, this is 12 pages front and back and I'm done. Anyway, you leave, right? You just leave your binder and your phone and you just get out because you don't want to be a part of that. You understand just a little bit. You don't understand the full context, but man, you make a snap decision, a snap judgment. And the problem with that, though, is that sometimes it leaves us in a place that's where, where we're hurt. Sometimes it sends us down a road that we don't need to be on. Sometimes it allows us, when we make that snap decision, that snap judgment, without understanding the full context, sometimes that means that we misinterpret the content. Right? Maybe that significant other wasn't trying to hurt our feelings. Maybe our roommate, when they did this or they left their clothes out or they didn't do those dishes, maybe it wasn't a personal attack against you. Right? Maybe they were just in a hurry. Right? Maybe sometimes when we make that snap decision, that snap judgment, we hurt ourselves. We misinterpret the content. And let me tell you right now that this is exactly what people do with the book of Hebrews. And as we walk through this semester, as we walk through this book, we're going to have to examine the context of the book. That's why this morning we're starting off not jumping deep into the book. Instead, we're kind of easing into it in an attempt to understand the context. We're going to be looking at the audience of the book. We're going to be looking at the author of the book. We're going to be looking at the authority of the book. And only when we have those things down are we able to better understand the argument of the book. And when we get there, once we arrive at that argument of the book of Hebrews, we're going to find that there's two major themes that we're going to be seeing throughout the entire semester. Last week, we unpacked one of them, uh, which is the faithfulness of Christ. Right? We learned last week through the life of Isaac that even if all of us were the most worst, terrible liars and thieves and murderers, even if all of us were unfaithful, that does not nullify the faithfulness of God. That God is still faithful, that Christ is better 
than Isaac. Christ is better than our unfaithfulness. And what we'll see this morning is as we unpack that argument, we'll see the second major theme is our fellowship in Christ. What we're going to find is that because of who Christ is, because of what he's done, that those of us that know and love Christ have an opportunity to know and love a community that is just better than any other community you'll ever know. But in order to get there, right, in order to kind of start us off, we're going to need to start off looking at, I mean, what, who's the audience? What, what's the point of this letter? Right, because the book of Hebrews is a letter. Uh, it was definitely written with an audience in mind. We know this primarily because there's lots of references throughout the book to a group of people, but especially the end. The end of the book, it ends like a letter. It's like, hey, so totally cool, make sure you do this and that, and it's from us, like, don't worry about it. It ends perfectly like a letter, but it's really confusing to us because it doesn't start like a letter. It ends like one, but it does not begin like one. Sort of like how uh, your parents, I'm assuming, my parents at least, always sign their text messages, right? (laughs) Hey, can't wait to see you, mom, right? Like, okay. You see that signature, right? They don't start off like, dear... Jacob, or I hope they do, actually. That would be way much more parental. But uh, we see this, right? So we know that the book of Hebrews, man, it starts off kind of not like a letter, but it ends just like a letter. So we know that there's an audience in mind. And, and while the book was first quoted in the first century by a guy named Clement of Rome, uh, when he is quoting the book, he doesn't actually name the audience, he doesn't say exactly who it is to. He just kind of takes it for granted. Uh, and it's not until about the second century that we start hearing it called uh, to the Hebrews, the, the letter to the Hebrews. All right, now this is popped up, not just because of random, not just because someone was like, eh, mm, Hebrews. Like they didn't just like come up with that. Uh, they're basing that a lot on internal evidence that we find. And honestly, when we read the book, uh, we'll find that there is uh, most likely the audience that's being directed to, towards is Jewish believers in the early 60s, AD. Okay, Jewish believers. We know this because uh, the author writes things like talking about how they have come to faith, how they, they came to know Christ uh, through the, the words of Christ's disciples. In other words, they heard from someone who followed Christ about Christ. So that puts them really, really early. Uh, it puts them uh, kind of in that believer category. We also think, though, that they were Jewish to begin with uh, because there's a lot of emphasis on the Old Covenant and on the Old Law. There's a lot of quotation. I mean, the whole book of Hebrews is like one big quotation of the Old Testament. And that wouldn't happen if I was a Gentile who came to faith. No, only if I'm a Jewish believer would I have that extensive knowledge of the Old Testament, would I hold in high regard that Old Covenant. And so suddenly we find ourselves seeing this, this audience as Jewish believers in the early 60s. And I say early 60s because at 65 AD is when everything just kind of hit the fan. Uh, for Christians. And in the book, we find that they're being persecuted somewhat, but they're not dying yet. The author literally says that you've been persecuted, you've suffered, but not yet unto death. And we know, though, in 65 AD, Nero is the one took to power and decided, I'm sick of these Christians. We're going to blame them. They're going to be our scapegoat for all these things that are wrong with the empire. And they start murdering them. Okay, so we assume it's probably not 65 or later, probably early 60s AD. So we have a Jewish believing community who is under persecution. Okay, keep that in mind. 
This is all going to come back together. Audience, Jewish believers under persecution. When we look at the author, uh, again, it's a little confusing. It's a little vague. And there's going to be a lot of different stances, a lot of different opinions on who this author is. Uh, Part of the problem is, again, remember, it's quoted in the first century by Clement of Rome. uh, But he doesn't name an author. He just kind of takes it for granted. Clement, you know, Ah, loose cannon Clement, that's him. He just doesn't, he just kind of shoots from the hip and doesn't name people, doesn't cite sources. You would get in trouble in your class if you did that, Clement. We're all still bitter at him for doing it, but he didn't name an author. And so we don't know. And so we don't know for sure, but we've kind of narrowed it down. At first, people just kind of knew who the author was and they didn't bother to write it down. Then people kind of decided in about in the third century, they're like, well, uh, I think it was Paul, right? Or even second century, they're like, "Eh, it was Paul. And so people started to ascribe that to him. Uh, They said that it was Paul's letter to the Hebrews. Uh, But pretty much immediately that started to get disputed. Pretty much immediately people were like, well, no, that doesn't really make sense. uh, Because while the thoughts and the ideas held within the letter line up with Paul, they said the, the writing just doesn't. They said, honestly, the thoughts are great, but the writing is too good. Because Paul was kind of notorious for writing like a a kindergartner, basically, like the axe cop kid, uh, in other words. So basically we have uh, early church fathers, this guy's origin says, you know, the character of the diction of the epistle superscribed to the Hebrews lacks the apostle's rudeness of expression, right? We were all thinking that. And then he says, but on the other hand, the thoughts of the epistle are admirable and in no way inferior to those of the acknowledged writings of the apostle. But as to who actually wrote the epistle, God knows the truth of the matter. Right? And so he used his little cheat code right at the very end. Just be like, eh, God knows. Oh, okay, origin. But he tells us, all right, look, this is, this is the deal. The writing is too good. He says Paul himself even admits. Paul writes about himself. I'm a terrible writer. Like he says that. So it's not like we're making fun of him behind his back. He knew it. But Hebrews is so eloquently written. It's so beautifully written. That we're like, it doesn't make sense for it to belong entirely to Paul. Uh, but we can still think through, we've added some other kind of theories and, and other ideas based around this author because uh, there were other people that maybe knew Paul that could have written things for him. So some people are saying, well, maybe it's Paul's ideas, but someone else is writing them down. Maybe someone else is taking notes on a, a sermon that Paul delivered or on multiple talks that Paul gave, and then he's just kind of transcribing them, uh, much like our good friend Axe Cop that we just met, right? So Axe Cop is a webcomic that's amazing, uh, and it's been going on for years, and basically there's uh, weekly comics, and they have this thing where people can write in and ask them questions, and so people ask them stuff like, hey, when, when you were a kid, did you ever really get into big trouble with your mom? And Axe Cop would explain to them, well, yeah, the first time I chopped someone's head off, you see it was a rabbit who had been breaking all the rabbit rules. The rabbit rules are to hop and eat carrots, but this rabbit walked and ate coconuts. <laughs> and the other rabbits, they really didn't like having to look at that. So after I chopped its head off, the rabbits were all very happy. It was my first time being, being a hero. Uh, but my mom was really mad for chopping off a rabbit head. But it was that day I decided instead of being a fireman, I wanted to be a cop. Axe cop. Okay, that makes sense, right? So suddenly, though, we see same thing. So obviously, the ideas contained in this answer Probably, yeah, they belong to a six-year-old, right? They belong to a six-year-old. But yet the art style, we're like, no, it's, that's way too good. When you're six, like the best drawing you do is like paint by numbers. And even then it's like everything's black or, you know, like it doesn't make sense. 
So when we see the art style, we're like, it doesn't quite line up. People look at the book of Hebrews and they see an Axe Cop cartoon. They're like, well, the thoughts are just, they don't line up with the writing. The writing is too good for these thoughts, for, or for Paul's thoughts. So like maybe someone else wrote it, or, or maybe they decide, maybe it wasn't that someone copied down Paul's notes. Maybe it's just someone that knew Paul, who was also a really skilled communicator. And so they've uh, brought up the ideas of maybe it was Barnabas, right? Some one of the guys that accompanied Paul on a lot of his journeys, uh, very knowledgeable, very respected uh, because the author, whoever he was, was very knowledgeable of the Old Testament, was very uh, knowledgeable of, of the customs and, and the ceremonies and the sacrifices. Or maybe they said, maybe it's Apollos, another guy that we hear about in our Bible, a guy who was a big-time preacher and speaker uh, and writer. He was very, a very gifted communicator. They're like, well, may- maybe it was Apollos, which would make sense because some of the thoughts are very Alexandrian, and he was from Alexandria. So, so maybe, maybe that's it. And the reality is, though, no one has really landed. If anyone tells you, I'm 100% certain it was this person, that, that person is a crazy person. You need to leave their company immediately because we don't know. We don't know for sure. Instead, what we do know is that it was most likely in that circle, right? So it's not like we're just like, oh, I don't know, Steve? Right? Like, it's not like just completely open-ended, but we're like it's probably somewhere in this circle. It's probably someone, either Paul or someone close to him, that wrote this book. And ultimately, though, it's very similar to our Song of Songs that we did in the fall, which is that, you know, maybe we don't know the exact author, the exact human author, but the reality is that we can all agree that the ultimate author of this book was not Paul or Apollos or Barnabas or Steve. The ultimate author of this book was God, was the Holy Spirit. This word is inspired. This word is from the Lord. And honestly, it's kind of cool that we don't quite know. Uh, Origen, again, sums it up really well when he says, you know, it, it may be some compensation for our ignorance, however, to have it brought home to us that early Christianity was even richer in creative minds and personalities than the exiguous, I looked it up, it means small, surviving evidence of tradition gives us to understand. He says, hey, at least the fact that we can't quite nail this down means that the early Christian church was like too legit to quit. Like they had more people than we even know about. This is how awesome is that? Because the problem with naming Apollos or Barnabas is that we have nothing to compare the writing to. We don't have any surviving documents by those men. Otherwise, this would be a slam dunk, much more, easier, much more easy to prove. But we don't. It's just the way it is. But ultimately, the Lord was the author. Ultimately, hey, Good for the early church. They got more cool people than we even know how to keep track of. That's awesome. But we have an audience that are Jewish believers under persecution. We have an author who is either an apostle or directly connected to an apostle. Someone very knowledgeable, someone very respected. And he's writing to this group of people. And we respect it as scripture, not just because we like the book. That's not how it works. Uh, whenever you study the canonization of our scripture, in other words, when you study how books become books of the Bible, that's really cool. I would encourage you to look it up. I'll give you a brief overview of the book of Hebrews. Basically, it first became acknowledged scripture uh, in 363 at the Council of Laodicea, which we're all like, oh yeah, 
that was a crazy council, right? Council of Laodicea. And the point of that council wasn't to walk in and be like, okay, look, here's the deal. Like, this is scripture, this is scripture. Like, throw all those things out. Like, these men and women, they, these people did not gather with the goal, with the job of, of regulating scripture. Instead, a council like that, they came together to recognize scripture. They came together to say, hey, what do you guys, what have you found? What are y'all reading? What has the Lord kind of brought up amongst your midst? What letters have you collected? Because at that point, these guys were having to answer a really tough question. They were having to answer the question of, which books am I going to die for? Because they were dying. Because there were people that would walk into their house, and if they found certain books, certain letters, you could die because of them. And so when those people, when those enemies came in and and started to rip things out or set fire to them and try to rip them from your home, you had to know which ones do I stand up and fight for and which ones do I not? Which books am I willing to die for? And so at the Council of Laodicea, they set the Bible we know as it is today, 66 books, 27 in the New Testament. They said, "This this is what will die for. And Hebrews was in that list because they recognized, man, there's something about Hebrews that's special, right? They, they acknowledge that maybe it's by an apostle. It's probably either by an apostle or someone directly connected to an apostle, which is a, a big plus. But they said it's more than that. It, it's consistent with our orthodoxy. In other words, it's very consistent with the rest of scripture, the Old Testament, with the New Testament. We, we find that this book has an incredibly high spiritual value we see that there is Christology, there is information about Christ and, and wording about Christ and explanations about Christ that are amazing in the book of Hebrews that we don't get anywhere else. And there are connections, beautiful connections between the Old Testament and Christ made in Hebrews that aren't made anywhere else. Things that we look at and we read and we're like, oh my gosh, that makes complete sense. Suddenly we look at the book of Hebrews and we know they knew at the Council of Laodicea, they said, man, this is, this is by God. This is the Lord's word. It's what led men like John Calvin to defend it, where he says that, look, I class it, I class Hebrews without hesitation among the apostolical writings. It says, indeed, there is no book in Holy Scripture which speaks so clearly of the priesthood of Christ There's no book that uses the same comparisons, the same priestly illustrations that Hebrews does. He says, which so highly exalts the virtue and the dignity of that only true sacrifice which he offered by his death, which so abundantly deals with the use of ceremonies as well as their abrogation, in other words, their end. There's no other book that talks about these ceremonies and the way that they connect with Christ. In a word, it so fully explains that Christ is the end of the law. Let us therefore not allow the church of God or ourselves to be deprived of so great a benefit, but firmly defend the possession of it. John Calvin, seen here, wagging his finger, saying, nuh-uh, don't you get rid of Hebrews. He's telling us, man, you don't get rid of Hebrews. Just That's what his finger's saying. Don't get rid of the book. He says it's too valuable. He says, you see things in this book that you don't see anywhere else in our scriptures. So we know, man, we, we've learned, we've, we've come to accept that the book of Hebrews is written ultimately by the Lord, that it has the same authority as Matthew or Mark or Luke or John or, or other books that we absolutely know the author, the, the books that we know the author so well that we name it after him, right? Like that's, Hebrews belongs in that same category. We've recognized it through the years. We've seen 
this book transform lives. So we know, I mean, it's Scripture. So we've got an audience of, of believing Jews being written to uh, by an apostle or, or someone connected to an apostle, some wise, knowledgeable person about the Old Testament, about the New Testament, about the life of Christ. And he's writing to him with the full authority of the Lord. So what is it saying? What does it communicate? What's the big argument? What's the big idea of the book of Hebrews? He sums it up really, really well in chapter 10. Okay, so we're going to skip forward a ton. Don't worry, next week we're going to be all the way back in chapter 1. But he sums up the book, kind of sums up his main arguments in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The author, he's, he's summing up the main argument of the book, and one of the first things he says is, let us remember, let us hold fast, let us be confident in what? In the blood of Christ, this new and living way, this great priest. We can be fully assured in our faith of this new, better way to the Lord. He's saying, ultimately, what we said last week, that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than everything we've seen before it. Remember, he's writing to an audience that is starting to fracture in the face of persecution. An audience that's starting to fragment and kind of pull apart from each other and start to lose track of where they're headed. And so he says, no, no, no. Remember, he says, remember, therefore we have a new living way. We have a something better. We have the blood of this perfect priest and sacrifice, Jesus Christ. This is what we're chasing. This is what we're about. He says, don't lose sight of this. We have a new, better way. Jesus is better than everything before, than everything since. You've got to remember that. We saw it in Isaac, where Isaac failed and failed and failed, and yet God was faithful and faithful and faithful. We see it in our lives, where God's love for us, it's not based on our performance, but it's based on our position that we're given by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. What we find in our own lives is that when we realize that we are sinners, when we are broken, when there's nothing in this world that we can fix or make right in and of ourselves and on our own, when we realize that fact, man, we suddenly find ourselves at a point where, where we are helpless and we feel hopeless. But when we realize that Jesus Christ lived that perfect life, that he stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again for our sake, for our sin, for our brokenness. When I realize that, when I put my faith in that, my trust in that, suddenly I have new life. Suddenly I am adopted. I'm now a child of the Lord Most High. And when I'm given that position based on my faith, God loves me. And he'll never quit. And it'll never lessen. And no matter how I feel in the moment, I can know for sure, for a fact, that God is faithful. That God is my Father. There's nothing I can do to change that. 
the author is just saying that in fewer words. That we have something better. That we don't need to fall apart. We don't need to fracture and go our different ways because Jesus is better. He's better than these things that are in front of you, these scary persecutions. He says you need to come back to this betterness, this, this perfection in Christ. But then he keeps going. He keeps going beyond the betterness, the, the wonderfulness, the perfection of Christ. And he goes into verse, oh, whoa. <laughs> he goes into verse 23 that we'll look at in a second. And he goes into verse 23 and he starts talking about, you know, here's the thing. Not only are you starting to fall apart, not only is Jesus better, this thing that should keep us uh, you know, focused on the main goal, but Jesus is better in a way that we should be focused on one another, that we should be brought back into community with one another. The author of Hebrews is telling them in verse 23, he says, look, we need to come back together. We need to find ourselves back in community. We need to find ourselves much like these guys. A few weeks ago, we did a segment on love where we talked to senior citizens about how it used to be. Well, in doing so, we met these two guys that I instantly took a liking to, two guys that I wanted to learn more about. So today, we're spending the afternoon with Harvey and Eddie. Here we are! Hello, gentlemen. Betty! How old are you guys? This man's 85, I'm 87. 85, hold it. Where, 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 where did you get that book? What, what number are you? I'm, 80, I'm going to be 84. Although there's snow on the roof, there's, there's fire in the belly. You better believe it. You like to take nice walks every now and again. Oh, he's I walk every day. You try to keep young. Do you guys like go out and party? Party? Yeah. <laughs> party. Yeah. Party. Seven o'clock at night, I'm in bed, and I have my party. Now, I want to talk pop culture with you guys, because life is a little bit different than when you were kids. For example, give me an example. Are you guys on Facebook? I prefer to talk to somebody face-to-face. What has happened to letter writing? That's disappearing. It disappeared, but I still write letters to my Hello grandchildren. There. That's very important. I am doing I fine. We're, we're I can't talk a, to you right now stage because of Channel life 4 is here. We're doing letter a program. That is but I will call you later. When, are you, when are you leaving for and, Florida? Uh, <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. We all want that friendship, right? Like that's that's kind of what we're all aiming for. We all want to be friends with those guys in particular, uh, but if not them in particular, at least with someone else like that, right? Like we all want to reach that level uh, where we can both be talking at the exact same time, right? One of us on the phone and the other one giving a monologue about how they miss letter writing. You know, like we want, there's something, there's something beautiful about that. There's something special. And there's something within us that desires that kind of community. And the author of Hebrews, I mean, he knows this. And he's writing to this group of people who are starting to fracture, who are starting to spread, who are starting to lose sight of their one true perfection in Christ, who are starting to lose sight, not only of the faithfulness of Christ, but they're starting to lose sight of their fellowship in Christ. And so he says, no, 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 you've you got to come back. Because this is great, this is good, but the reality is that, man, this friendship is nothing compared to what we can have in the community of believers. I mean, this is uh, just a, a, a glimpse, just a shadow of what we can experience within the community of believers. Why? Because we're not bound by just experience. We see instead that we're not just bound by the fact that we're both 84 and have fire in our bellies. Well, that's awesome. But we have something more. We, we see in the book of Hebrews, we see the author telling us that we, we need to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And so, so we need to let us, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love, to good works. He says, what's uniting us? Is it our shared experience? Is it our uh, love of this basketball team or that organization or that class? No, he says, it's this confession of our hope. It's this faith we have in he who is faithful. Suddenly we see that there's something bigger and better about Christian community. Summed up by this uh, pastor, German pastor from the 20th century, a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Sums it up great in a book that he has called Life Together. It says, we're bound together, we being Christians, we are bound together by faith, not by experience. That's what sets us apart. Because the reality is that experiences end, right? And every single experience, it ends. But our faith is forever. Our faith is eternal. Our faith never ends. Because even when we're unfaithful, Christ himself is faithful. So the author of Hebrews is saying, you, you need to be bound by this faith. You need to grab a hold of that truth. You should be running after one another, running together. And he sums it up. He says there are two things that we do within that, right? So, so we're not only are we bound by this faith, not only holding fast this confession of hope, but then once we have that, we then what? Stir up one another to love, to good works. It says we use that community to do something. We stir each other up towards love because the reality is that love, godly fellowship always expands. Right? We, we see that. We know that good fellowship, it's, it's always growing. I like to think of it uh, in very broad terms as kind of a, a, a sports fan and then like a music fan. Okay? Now I'm painting broad generalizations. If you're one of them, don't be offended. But generally speaking, a sports fan, so you've got this guy and he's like, I love the birds, okay, because the birds are going to be in the Super Bowl, so he's a fan. So he's like, I love the birds, or seabirds, whatever. So he says, I love the seabirds so much, and he's going to wear their hat, and he's going to wear their jackets and vests and I don't know, galoshes, and he's going to be so excited about the seabirds that the rest of us, we're looking at them like, ah, I don't know. But if someone approaches him, he says, you know, I think maybe I kind of like the seabirds. And I'm just kidding. I know they're really the sea eagles, whatever. But then he says... <laughs> says, I kind of like the Sea Eagles. And then this guy would, what would he say? What, in that moment, what does the sports fan generally say? Generally speaking, the sports fan is going to be like, well, hot doogity doo, like, let's do it. And he gives him a, a hat and a vest off his back and says, oh, man, I'm so excited. You should come over to my house and we'll watch the 10 hours of pregame. And then we'll watch SportsCenter afterwards for three days. And then you're just so excited about this thing. And you're like, oh, man, this is great. And you see that community grow and expand as more people get excited. As opposed to many times, not every time, but many times, you have someone over here who's the fan of a particular band. Okay, so they love uh, The Nightmare Is My Christmas. Okay, so that's the name of their band. They love them. And they love (laughs) The Nightmare Is My Christmas. And Someone else walks up and they're like, hey, I, I kind of like The Nightmare Is My Christmas. And I heard them on Pandora. And then what does the original fan of My Nightmare Is My Christmas say? Ah, no, they're my band. Get away. You know, and they like push them away, right? Suddenly, generally speaking, we see two very different types of fellowship. We see one circle that is very inviting. And we see another circle that is a little bit more intimidating, right? That, that's not very conducive to growth. And when we look at those things, we know, man, there's something deep within us. There's something that pushes us and inspires us by that growing fellowship, that growing group. 
The author of Hebrews is saying, that's what you should be. You know that that's good because that's the way that God works. It's just a shadow of what we have in Christ. That when we are bonded together by faith, suddenly we find ourselves in a community, in a fellowship, that can be growing, that should be stirring up one another towards love and constantly expanding, pushing out and out and out and out. So that's what we have in Christ. I mean, that's why we have things here at Grace like, like our small groups. That's why we have Bible studies. Not just so that we can get you in a room and talk to you about, uh, you know, whatever the book is or whatever the scripture is. Like, that's not the point of that moment. It's part of it, but it's not the whole point. Part of it is we want to learn and grow and, and learn from the scriptures, but a huge part of it is we want to grow and expand the number of people that we bring into that fellowship. We want our love to grow. We want our fellowship to expand. So I'm going to just ask you right now, I mean, what are you doing this semester to expand the love of Christ? If you're not a believer, let me just encourage you by saying your, your appearance here, the fact that you're here right now, is a great first step. And this is a great place that we want to talk to you and we want to know you. We want you to come ask us questions after the service. We would love to invite you to coffee or lunch or or a group if you want. If you are a believer, again, your presence here right now is a great step. But there's more that you could be doing. There's conversations you could be having with the people you don't know in this room. There's conversations. There's a group. There's a small group, a grow group, a start group that you can join where you can not just show up because you want to feel fulfilled and you want to learn and grow, but you show up with the mindset of, I'm going to expand the love of Christ to more people. I'm going to show up to this group not because I want to meet my own needs. I'm going to show up to this group because I want to serve and I want to love and encourage and get to know these other guys or these other girls in that group. That's why those things exist. Because we want to stir up one another to love. But not only that, we want to stir up one another towards good works. Godly fellowship, it it always expands, but the truth is godly fellowship also always serves. It gives in some way. It moves in a way that is selfless and sacrificial. That's what godly fellowship does. And we see that. And what's beautiful is uh, just here, just in this little slice, this little window into the fellowship of God that is Grace College. We have something really cool that happens every single year that I noticed for the first time this year. Because it's only my second year, so I'm not that far behind. But I noticed that we have all these different serve groups. Okay, So we have these different groups that are like, uh, we do uh, community outreach, we do uh, global outreach, uh, or we work with this group or that group, or we, have, you know, we facilitate connections between students. They, all these different groups. And one of the groups... It's called crew team. It used to be called the service team, whatever. Whatever it is, what they do basically is they do work projects and they set up chairs. That's what they do. The chair you're sitting in right now was more than likely set up by someone on our crew team. And that's just what they do week in, week out. They show up on Thursdays at like 6.30 and they set up a million billion chairs every single week. And then after we're done, okay, here in like 20 minutes when we're all kind of packing up, we're like, oh man, that was good, let's go Blue Baker. Like when we're in that moment, crew team, they're not on break yet. They're not done. And what they do is they start stacking up chairs and they take all those beautiful chairs that they put in such perfect little rows and perfect aisles 
and they just destroy all of it, right? They just get rid of all of it, and they put it in that room, and then it's in there, and we just forget about it until the next Thursday when they set it all back up again, and they do that every single week. And their only reprieve, the only other thing that they get to do every single year is they set up work projects to go and, like, mow people's yards and dig ditches and, I don't know, babysit. I don't know what they do. They do things for people. That's what they do. And here's what's crazy. Here's what blows my mind. Every single year, that group, that crew team, they are the most well-attended the most positively reviewed group that we have across the board. That is the one group that every single person in it is like, I want to do it again next year and next year and next year, and then I'll graduate. But think of all the time I'll have to do chairs then, and they just want to come back and they want to help. Man, it's, it's amazing. And those people love each other and they come and they set up and they are so pumped and it is full. We have to turn people away from crew team every single year. Every year. And those people at the end of the year are like, that was the best thing. Cheers. Right? They just love it. Why? Why are they so pumped? It's because they are serving together in a way that is just unabashedly service. You can't dress it up or paint it in any other light. It is pure service. It is pure sacrifice. And when you are in the midst of that, it brings you life. God has designed us to function in that way. God has designed our fellowship to work in that way. Our godly fellowship, man, it always, always serves. So I would encourage you this semester, look for a way to serve. We have tons of opportunities here at Grace. I'm not even going to list them all because it'll be just too much information. You can go to our website if you're interested. So many ways you can serve in our ministry, children's, youth, all over the place. But also right now in the midst of all this crazy start of the spring, many of you are maybe even aware another great way to serve is you sign up to give away about a week of your next summer for freshmen at Impact Camp. I know that many of you have been to this. Many of you have probably even served at this. And, you know, this is something that generally we, uh, we just kind of let them promote on their own. But we decided, you know, this year uh, we want it to be different. This year, we want to recognize from the front that this is an incredible way to serve. That this is a way that you can move into a freshman's life, an 18-year-old's life. Think back on your freshman year that some of you are still in. But just think back. Man, that summer, that summer's crazy. You don't know what's going on. Like you're showing up for school or camp or whatever it is. You have no idea what's happening. And impact, man, it strikes right in that moment, right in that moment of the maximum confusion, that moment of the maximum potential impact comes in and it reminds them, you need to know the Lord. You need to know his people. Whatever you do in college, make sure you're grounded in those truths. So if you are a believer, if you can experience, if you are experiencing this fellowship in Christ, I would encourage you. You are stirring up one another to love, to expand. You are stirring up one another to good works, to serve. And this is a great way to do that. So, man, as, as we close and as we sing a couple more songs and enter into a little bit more worship, I mean, I, I would just encourage you to Pray to the Lord.
and ask him to put something on your heart for this semester, some sort of goal. I mean, this morning uh, is in, was insane. Like, the fact that I'm still holding a mic and everything has gone wrong is weird. And I know my thoughts are incredibly scattered. And so I imagine a lot of us are in the exact same place. Where we're like, I don't, what was the Hebrew, or Acts, Hebrews is about Acts Cop, what is going Like, we don't really know. There's certain things, we're like, oh my God, what's going, where am I? So that's why I love this moment. That's why I love the way that we do our worship experience, our worship kind of service, our order. Uh, and just so you know, I mean, we have this exact same thing at 7 o'clock tonight. We're going to repeat the whole process. I'm going to break my mic on purpose so that it's the exact same. <laughs> That'd be insane. Uh, but we have this exact same thing at 7 p.m. So if, you, if it's warm in here for you, if you, your parking was like, oh, my gosh, where was it? Like, you can come in the evening, and it's a little bit less congested. It's a little bit more chill. It's the exact same thing. Okay? But one of the things I love about the way that we do it in the morning and in the evening is that we have this moment where our band comes back up and we have a couple more songs because this moment is very strategic in that it allows us to kind of refocus our thoughts, kind of refocus in on what the Lord's going to teach us. So I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. I'm calling an audible right now, like a seagull. <laughs> We're going to spend a few extra minutes in prayer. I mean, I don't know uh, if you know the Lord if this is something that you've done, uh, never, <laughs> you never really prayed and you don't really know how that works, uh, in which case I would encourage you to just be still and, and try to talk to the Lord and your thoughts. If you have any questions or if you're like, that's too weird, come talk to a person. There's going to be people in the back that can talk to you. That's normal. You've done that before. If you are a believer and you've prayed, man, day in, day, you've done all this kind of stuff, I would encourage you to take this moment. We're going to have a few extra minutes to just go before the Lord and ask him to, to kind of focus us this semester. Like I said, this morning has been bonkers nuts. But ask the Lord to maybe pick out one truth, one thing that we're going to chase after. Whether it's growing in that love or, or growing in that service. Whether it's just remembering that Christ is faithful when we fail. Or whether it's remembering that we have this new fellowship made available in Christ. Whatever it is, let's go before the Lord right now and ask for those things. God, we, we thank you that you are good and that, God, you are in control. And, Lord, even when our uh, breaks or our semesters or our Sunday mornings go spinning wildly out of our control, God, we thank you that you are in control, that, God, ultimately nothing occurs that's apart from your plan, that's apart from your purpose. God, remind us of that truth, of that reassuring fact that you're in control of this semester that's coming up. That, God, you're in control of that break that maybe just was terrible. If you would, take a moment. Ask the Lord to, to just show you, kind of, kind of reveal in your heart and your mind, where are you just not trusting Him? And where have you just straight off and kind of gone on your own path and kind of used your own devices. Ask the Lord to show you I mean, where could you be coming back? Where do you need to come back into faith, into reliance on Him? Where do you need to put your faith back in Jesus Christ who is always faithful? Ask Him that right now.
And if you would, take a moment. Ask the Lord to guide your thoughts ahead uh, towards tomorrow or towards the week or the next week or, or just the semester in general. Ask the Lord to, to start stirring in your heart, in your mind, giving you a, a maybe a, a face of a person that you need to welcome into the fold of fellowship, someone that you need to be loving or maybe give you a, a mission, uh, maybe a group of, of friends or roommates who you could be stirring up towards love. Ask the Lord to maybe then, or maybe show you that, that there is a, an opportunity where you can be serving, where you can grab your friends, your roommates, your classmates to serve with you. Ask God to give you a mission, to give you a focus, to give you a point on the horizon that you can run after the semester knowing that we have this beautiful fellowship in Christ that we shouldn't waste. Ask him to show you that right now. Now take a moment and pray for the people sitting around you. Man, there are guys and girls in here from all kinds of backgrounds that are going to all sorts of places. And you might know some of them. You might not know any of them. But pray that the Lord would be working on their hearts and on their minds. We're all here recognizing that there is fellowship in Christ. So, so stir one another up right now in your prayers. You don't know their names or maybe even their faces, but pray for the person next to you, in front of you, behind you. Ask that God would be steering them in a direction this semester, just as you ask for yourself.